Welcome to the 340th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome sociologist of risk and the environment, Dana Fisher. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. A special program note, this is a special COVID Calls at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 13th, 2021, there are 4,630,729 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Colombia's 12-year-old eco-activist refuses to let death threats dim passion. This was written by Patrick Greenfield, and appeared September 13th, 2021 in The Guardian. Ever since someone threatened to kill her 12-year-old son, Ana Maria Manzanares says life has felt like Samuel Beckett's waiting for Godot. In January, Francisco Vera was sent anonymous death threats on Twitter after the young environmentalist called for better access to education for children during the COVID-19 pandemic. The news caused outrage in Colombia and made headlines around the world. President Ivan Duque pledged to find the bandits that sent the message. Nine months later, nobody has been arrested, but the fear and anxiety have not gone away. Anguish of not knowing what you're waiting for or when it will arrive, but you wait for it nonetheless, it's tough, says Manzanares, comparing her situation to the Irish writer's absurdist tragicomedy in which the two main characters wait for Godot, who never comes. I'm always watching out. The threat might not materialize, but from the moment you're told about it in a country like Colombia, you expect anything could happen at any moment. In 2020, for the second year running, the South American country was the most deadly in the world for environmental defenders, according to Global Witness, which recorded 65 killings. They include 55-year-old biologist Gonzalo Cardona, credited with saving the yellow-eared parrot from extinction, who was murdered by a criminal gang and 38-year-old ranger Yamid Alonso Silva, who was killed near El Coqui National Park. Even though he's a child, Manzanares knows her son's activism puts him at risk from groups that would rather he remain quiet. Francisco is a well-known environmentalist and defender of Colombia's extraordinary biodiversity that stretches from the high Andes to the Caribbean and Pacific coasts. He uses his social media profiles, which have thousands of followers, to campaign against fracking and mining, particularly in Andean moorland, Francisco's favorite ecosystem, which is home to the spectacled bear and otherworldly flora. In a video call in March, Francisco, then 11, talks about the wildlife around his home in Villeta, northwest of Bogota, showing photos he has taken of condors, woodpeckers, spiders, and fungi. Colombia is very biodiverse and very rich in natural resources, But there are other things going on, and the environment is not always on the agenda of the government and citizens, he says. Francisco has made friends with other young environmentalists around the world on Facebook and Twitter. Social media is a tool for digital activists. It's really important for for spreading messages. Shortly after this interview, Manzanares says they've now taken down her son's social media profiles after cyber attacks and trolling. Francisco only returned to digital activism last month. After the death threat in January, the Colombian government gave Francisco a bodyguard. But what they really want, says his mother, is for someone to be brought to justice. Manzanares says she had anticipated threats over her son's environmental activism, but had not expected them to come so soon. Even so, she does not want to stand in the way of her son's passion for nature. Some people have suggested we don't talk about the threats, so we do not re-victimize Francisco, but it's something that's happened and is well documented. It hurts him. The tranquility and life we had before are not coming back. Trying to hide it, to me, doesn't seem right, she says. What we really want to know is where the threats come from and that they're prosecuted. And that hasn't happened yet.
<clears throat> okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Dana Fisher. Dana R. Fisher is a professor in the sociology department at the University of Maryland. Her research focuses on questions related to democracy, activism, and climate politics. Her recent projects include a study of responses to climate change by political elites in the United States, the emergence of the civilian climate corps, and activism and protest around a range of issues. Professor Fisher has authored or, uh, over 65 research papers and book chapters and has written six books. Her most recent book is American Resistance, which appeared with Columbia University Press in 2019. She currently serves as a contributing author for Working Group 3 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Sixth Assessment Review, writing about citizen engagement and civic activism. She's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. Dana R. Fisher, thank you so much for making time to talk to me on COVID calls today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Let me uh, follow the pattern I usually do just to start by finding where you're, you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Well, I'm in uh, Maryland, directly outside of Washington, D.C. I'm in Montgomery County. We have a, about a 5% positivity rate right now. So we are in, I guess, a limbo. It's unclear based on data because we just had a weekend whether or not we're evening out or the data haven't come in yet for the weekend and things are continuing to go up. So here we are. I can tell you at the University of Maryland, we have resumed school, open school back up. So I'm teaching in person now, um, but we have a vaccine mandate in place and everybody has to be masked. And um, today I had two students who couldn't come to class because they were feeling sick and had to go get tested. So um, that's where we are. And that, that kind of communication is a normal one for college professors to get a note from a student saying I couldn't come uh, for this or that reason pre-COVID. But what does that trigger for you in terms of responsibility, if anything, in these times? Well, it's, it's different now because, um, well, in the past, the idea was um, if you were not too sick, you should really come to class so you could get the information. And now I really want to encourage people not to come if they have germs that they're going to spread um, because everybody's very concerned and we certainly don't want to have a super spreader in my class. So that's, it's, it's different and it's interesting because it's changing my philosophy. I mean, historically, I really was much more of an in-person teacher. I really did not enjoy Zoom the past you know, year of teaching on Zoom. I love being in the classroom with my students. But now, you know, I see a place for the technology and being able to use the technology to keep us all safe or as safe as we can be. I wonder if you could share a memory of this COVID time something that really sticks with you and of any of anything throughout this time period which is is now we have it in eras right we have sort of early covid mid covid and wherever we are wherever we are now is there some moment in that time that really resonates for you well i was originally thinking i would talk about um before the the pandemic really spread extensively in the United States, and we were still just hearing of small numbers of cases throughout the United States. I was teaching in person um, one of my my environmental sociology classes. And as I mentioned to you before we, we began, I was teaching about the risk society and reflexive modernization, which is a theory that I, um, well, I think is particularly relevant today. But at the time, I was, I've always been a really big supportive of the theory, which talks a lot about risk and social perceptions of risk and how it is, it can, it can lead to social change. And so I was tracking because I was teaching this work during that time in class, and I was tracking as the virus was coming closer and closer and spreading. Um, and I was also traveling because I was on my book tour. So um, I had just come back from uh, being in Iowa giving book talks and I sat next to a woman who I was convinced had basically, you know, in this very tight little plane or she was sitting right on top of me, coughing all over me. And I thought, that's it. I'm done. But um, I did not get COVID and uh, I did get some sort of horrible sinus infection. Um, but I ended up teaching my students about um, reflexive modernization and the risk society using this example, which was such a wonderful example as we saw 
the numbers coming out and the cases spreading. And, um, and it was really, you know, remarkable because it was, it was almost out of a scene from a movie, you know, because every day, every two days we would have class and I'd be like, and here's the map today. It's coming. You know, a colleague of mine just said they shut the schools in Japan. And then, you know, there was a huge lockdown in Italy. And I remember some people were YouTubing at, and posting on YouTube their personal experiences trying to get out of certain parts of Italy. And we had, you know, exchange students there at the time from the University of Maryland. So I said, here's a video of what it's like in Italy. And everybody was sitting, pretending the world was not about to change dramatically and watching these videos. And it was crazy. But I also was told I wasn't allowed to talk about it anymore at the dinner table because I, I kept warning that... It's about to come. We're gonna, we're gonna get it. Everything's gonna shut down. And I, I was told to stop. So I stopped, but we did shut down. So that I think that's one of my biggest memories is just seeing it coming and knowing that this tidal wave was about to flow over us. And yet, um, and thinking about it from an academic perspective, but still personally, I was completely ill, you know, ill prepared for the actual experience of it, as I'm, I'm guessing most of us were. Yeah, I, I, and just a couple of points about that. The having the risk or disaster expert in the family, I, I definitely sympathize with that. And and my family members certainly put up with a lot of disaster talk from me. And and uh, I'd say my my wife's parents are are the most devoted COVID calls listeners. They listen to to every episode. So so then Hello. when I yeah when I whenever I see them, we talk about it, and I think man. I, this pushes all boundaries of what they should have to put up with from me. But, um, you know, uh, other members of the family say, well, we've heard enough of that. Let's talk about baseball and football. Um, another part of that I want to hone in on. So you were on a flight promoting a book as all of this was breaking open. Oh, yeah. And I actually, I was supposed, I had this amazing trip to Europe planned for um, March 2020, but I didn't go on any of it. I haven't gone anywhere. So, I mean, I got grounded the first week of March, I guess. So I just come back from Iowa and that was my last trip, but I had this amazing itinerary for promoting the book. And I was going to be talking about the book at the London school of economics and at Oxford. And I had this exciting meeting at the, the house of commons scheduled wow. um, in the UK and, and it all got canceled. So, so, I mean, I guess they, you know, some people talk about the um, personal feelings of how COVID affected them. I mean, and for me, I've been, you know, really lucky. I've only known a small number of people who have gotten really sick and have passed away from the disease. Um, and my family's been really lucky because we were able to stay, you know, in lockdown. Uh, but, you know, certainly it had a personal effect be well beyond, you know, health in terms of kind of professional development and experiences. I've been looking forward to talking to you um, for a lot of reasons, one of which because, um, you know, a lot of the COVID calls we get really deep into into individual narratives and empirical, you know, and that's and it's great and I enjoy that. But also to sort of talk with you to zoom out a little bit, talk about risk and society and environment. And I guess I want to start very generally there because uh, we are going to talk about theory today and um, you know terms like that. I mean, why did you gravitate to that kind of work in the first place? And and when you use terms like risk and society and environment, I sometimes worry that people tune out because they're so big. And they seem to just be these sort of meta categories floating over everything. It really takes some persistence to actually engage with them with using, you know, sort of criticality. So I wonder if we could just start with that. Why are you drawn to this work? Well, and the thing that's kind of, I think, funny about the whole the whole experience is that. So I'm an empiricist. You know, I'm a I'm a down to you know in the ground field researcher, social scientist. I go out and I collect my own data. And if I haven't collected it myself, I'm always very skeptical. And it's funny because that's kind of been my bread and butter from the beginning. That's what drove me to, you know, I went to graduate school thinking I was going to go back to the policy world where I had been working at a think tank. And I fell in love with social theory. And, um, and one of the people, you know, whose work that just really resonated with me was Ulrich Beck, but also Jürgen Habermas's work. And I just got, I just, so it's so funny because I really have always, my whole career, always starting in graduate school, I was very much about go collect the data, mm -hmm. see it, make sure I understand what's really going on in the world. And yet at the same time, I had these questions and thoughts about, you know, broader processes and how they play out and the, the importance of them. 
And so for a long time, I had this idea about the anthro shift, which is the, the piece that we were going to talk about today floating around in my head. And I was like, but I'm an empiricist. I don't write theory. So I'm, I'm just going to let that be. But it was this constant thing. And, and over uh, like a 10 year period, the idea kept coming up and it particularly came up because I would go to annual meetings and people would continue to present the same debate over and over again. Here's a case where I'm proving ecological modernization is true. Here's a case where I'm proving that ecological Marxism is true. And it was just this swinging back and forth, back and forth. And nobody ever came to a resolution. They just didn't talk to one another and get along very well. So at a certain point, um, Andrew Jorgensen and I, over time, over the years, became friends and you know colleagues and were chatting over the years. And I said to him, you know, I really want to write this paper. And I want to go above these different theories and try to see how they're related to one another and how risk plays this bigger role in society and what's going on in society. And he also is an empiricist. He does very different work from me. He actually, he's, the funny thing about it is I come more from this more post-Marxist perspective, you know, a perspective that thinks about how society and the environment can work together in a successful manner. Andrew comes more from this, uh, uh, like a world social theory, um, world systems kind of approach and more of a developmental approach where he looks at like these large scale international data sets. And he tends to come more from a political economy perspective that has less optimistic views of the way society and the environment can work together. So we came from really different empirical worlds, but we both had never written theory before. And we sat down and we worked on this and, um, and it took a long time. But it just seemed like a really important piece to write to add, you know, a more general way of thinking about what's going on in the world that we don't really get from being in the weeds of doing the field research and the empirics of it. And I, to be honest, Scott, I was very frustrated because we've seen a lot of people writing for a more popular audience about the environment, about risk, about disaster, mm -hmm. without any theoretical um, narrative that helps us understand the world. And I felt like given that I have all of these data behind the work I've done and I, you know, I wanted to connect these theories, I felt like it was a really important, um, story to tell. I mean, that, to be honest, the next step was supposed to be to write a book, which I've kind of stalled on, uh, I blame COVID. Um, but, uh, That's you fair. know, yeah, but I mean, so I have all of these data and the idea is that that's, that's the next, the next step probably is to write the book. But so we just wrote the paper and the paper is very much written for this theory audience. So, but I actually think the ideas there are very appropriate and can be digested quite, quite well by gen the general public if it's framed in, you know, to be understood that way. Well, I want to come to the details of the, of your anthro shift paper, but it, just to kind of work into it. What we're talking about here at, a, at the broadest level is the interactions of environmental change, society, and and power, and politics. And you know, even in in my lifetime, um, I can count at least sort of two big shifts. And this is just the U.S., the United States, and sort of like public framing of the problem of environmental change. I mean, I was growing up at a time when it was still sort of like the kind of the end of the 60s and 70s, you know, environmental movement. And then it was the Reagan years and then sort of the discovery of climate change. And to see those two sort of discourses, so one, and they still kind of exist. And sometimes they are one and sometimes they break apart. But I think if, if everybody thinks about in their own lives, how the environment has been talked about by the politicians that they've supported or, or not supported, they know why this is important work because it's just a standard part of just American politics. And in other parts of the world, particularly in Europe, um, it's even a deeper part. It's even more central to the discourse around what it means to live in society of any type, particularly democratic society. So that, with that on the table, um, you, I mean, I think it's in the first part of this paper, you really um, collect, I guess, the sort of different narratives, the different um, theories that have been used to account for environmental change. And I don't want you to have to go through all of them right here, but Ulrich Beck is one that you, you point to. I, maybe you can just hit a couple of the high points that you think are important in that kind of family lineage of this problem. 
Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, basically, if we look over the arc of research that tries to theorize about the relationship between society and the environment, one of the big themes that we have within the social sciences, when we think about this, is the question is, can society continue moving forward economically and protect the environment at the same time? And we tend to, to call that, you know, whether or not an environmental state is possible, that doesn't mean the environment, the state is only going to focus on the environment, but rather does, would the state actually take environmental protection as a basic component of its job? Like theoretically, at least, the a state actually takes care of its, you know, citizens in terms of making sure they have health care, making sure they have education, you know, the, think about the kind of modern welfare state. So that would be what an environmental state is. And then there are two schools of thought on that, right? There are the school of thought that very much is connected with kind of a Marxian perspective that tends to say, you know, in a bunch of different ways, looking either at, you know, smaller cases, looking more globally, and they basically just say, no, it's not really possible. When, um, when society actually progresses and economic development continues, it is by definition going to destroy the environment. Environmental degradation is com a component of progress. And therefore, we have this really, really, really problematic, you know, enduring conflict, as, you know, Alan Schneeberg said, it, you know, in the 1980s and continued saying till he died. Um, on the other side of the coin is a bunch of scholars who basically say, no, you can have economic development and economic progress at the same time as you have environmental protection. And you can do it in different ways. It can be through um, technological innovation. That's where ecological modernization, which got a lot of attention, you know, in the 90s and even the early aughts, as people thought about how nation states were really working towards having more environmental protection as part of what they were doing by using technological fixes. Um, the Risk Society and Ulrich Beck's work comes from a really different perspective. And there, it actually comes from this perspective that there needs to be this universalization of risk and in some ways despair, right? He, um, Beck, you know, uses these phrases like nobody else, um, which is one of the reasons I love to teach him to undergrads because those there's some students just find it just, it's poetry, right? It's like... Um, hope embedded in despair, right? So we have this universalization of risk. Everybody is concerned about risk. It is, you know, the great equalizer because everybody feels the same risk. And out of that, people form these new coalitions and make social change that solves the problem. You know, Risk Society and Reflexive Modernization was originally written, you know, with Anthony Giddens and Scott Lash coming out of the Chernobyl accident and how Europe responded to Chernobyl. And so what we really see is the way that that was not a specific case, but rather, you know, they wrote this broader theory about how societies respond. And I think in a lot of ways that gives us a really good um, departure point for thinking through the anthro shift, because these, these two perspectives, you know, they, they both have very, very clear expectations of what's going to happen. Either we're doomed or we can figure ourselves out of it. And, it's unclear how bad it'll get before we get there. And the problem is that there's no way to reconcile it. And there's no way to explain the way the world actually has worked. If we think about times where we looked like we were on the right path and then all of a sudden something happened. And in many cases, it's a political shift or a shift in power that happens that then moves people towards and society towards um, no longer in, you know, regulating emissions, no longer enforcing specific environmental policies. And it's this pendulum swing that we don't really understand. And that's one of the reasons I think the answer shift is so important. Just to underline Ulrich Beck, uh, we, we were talking just before, I've been teaching Ulrich Beck this week uh, to undergraduates here at, at KAIST. And I always have this, I put it on the syllabus, I'm like, this is going to be great. And then I get in the classroom and I'm working with it. And I'm like, I can't believe I, I, I signed up to do this. And then, and then we get into the discussion, and and some of it is so. I hate to say this, but it's it's intuitive now, and then particularly for younger students. In fact, they're a little surprised. I got the sense of our conversation this week. They're a little surprised. I'm so hung up on it. You know what I mean? Because because <laughs> yes. I do think there's something about that. You know, having li if you live through through Mile Island and Chernobyl and that sort of the awakening of climate change, Beck's words 
and his writing and, and Giddens and, and Lash and others who, who worked in it, they were on the field, like a, right on the cutting edge of, of something and that this universalization of risk was happening. And then that would necessarily lead to a, a new politics and a new way that we think about social class. And my students are not surprised by that in the least. <laughs> now, what, right, I mean, that, what that turns into in terms of activism or how they might think about the South Korean state, that's what we'll be talking about as we go throughout the rest of the term. Well, that sounds so interesting. I mean, so I taught this back in, so I, my first job was in New York City at Columbia University, and I arrived there in August 2001, so right wow. before 9-11, and I taught this right after 9-11. And Ulrich Beck's work resonated very well for everybody living in New York City at the time. And then people forgot about it. I mean, and that's the thing that I think me that that's the reason why we need to think about the anthro shift, because there is what we what we talk about in the paper is there's this expectation of, of a uh, unidirectionality, right? The world only goes in one direction. Once we get to thinking about risk and trying to make social change to reduce risk, be it environmental risk or risk of pandemic, we don't go back. But that's just not how the reality of the world works. And that's one of the reasons that we had to write the paper. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. And I'm talking today to Dana R. Fisher about risk and the environment and society. And we're going to shift over now to talking about, we've been talking about the anthro shift. So we've got the, this sort of background of why these problems are important to you and the sort of problem of the lack of theory to account for uh, disaster in everyday life that we're seeing around us. And I share with you that experience of having been at conferences and thinking, is this what we just do now? We just come up with these different theories and let them fight and we don't actually move forward somehow in ways policymakers can get their teeth into it. So talk about the paper, Ending the Stalemate Toward a Theory of Anthro Shift. And you did this in conjunction with Andrew K. Jorgensen. Yeah, so basically, um, ending the stalemate is the stalemate between these two perspectives that I, I've mentioned here, right? So we had this ongoing debate. And, you know, I think the reason that Andrew and I started talking about this is we were at a conference, um, I don't know, 12 years ago, maybe. We were at a conference. I, I, one, of, one of my main advisors in my graduate program uh, for my PhD was uh, William R. Fordenberg. And it was towards, I think it was the last time he came to um, but basically, you know, I said, I think it's there's there's no question that risk is helping to motivate change. And we ended up finally finishing the paper after the 2016 election when there was all this discussion about risk in terms of perceptions of being left behind by certain components of the U.S. population helped to drive the success of the Trump campaign, even though so many people were surprised by the outcome. And so the risk part, I thought, you know, made a lot of sense in terms of thinking of it as what we call a pivot for shifting people in the way they behave. And we can think just around the period of COVID to see that, right? So how much did every individual change their behavior because of this sense of risk of the pandemic or risk of getting sick or risk of their family getting sick? How many institutions changed policies that they said would never change because of their sense of risk? So many of them. But what is the other component of the anthro shift is this multidirectionality, which is the fact that risk can shift us to a society where there is much more of these kinds of coalitions that are more bottom up, like Ulrich Beck sees in terms of these coalitions across sub subaltern publics that create, you know, eco-profiteers is what he calls them to move us forward. But it can also in the anthro shift, it can also shift us towards much more of a hierarchical structure where, you know, it's very, very much a strong state leading to an, you know, in a very uh, isolated and hierarchical economic sector where the economic sector doesn't collaborate with businesses or civil society actors. Either of those are possible. And so basically what we say is that a lot of these, these theories that have been in, in conflict with one another, they're all right at the same time. And it depends where you are on the answer shift, who's right at the moment. Sometimes we see a time where you see a very strong state emerge and the strong state basically leads us to have a, you know, a stronger economic sector and less regulation implementation um, of policies for the social good. You could see that after 9-11. And then at other times, 
there's this risk that's that's different that leads us take for example after hurricane sandy hurricane katrina or even around covid where all of a sudden there's a reorientation and the social actors work differently to collaborate because there was a surprise risk that led us to have to make big changes. I mean, in all of these cases, rich, risk is coming in on cat's paws, as Beck says. Mm. It's surprising us because that's the thing about risk is there are so many of them. There's never, it's never possible to get rid of all the risks we experience and to predict what's going to happen. Let me just focus in a little bit on the way you, you see this with COVID. And, and so one thing that has, I still am impressed by it that in the months of of late, well, in January, in some places where I am, but um, February, siloing of risk has been, I think it's been deeply problematic because, you know, we create structures to specialize on problems and then those become sort of policy subcultures. In, in general, we think that's good, right? I mean, that, that, you know, more specialization helps solve a more complicated problem. But if there's never any knitting back together, in terms of a bigger picture, or in terms of policy remedies, then they remain natural disasters, technological disasters, health disasters. I don't know if you see anything moving, you know, what, what the anthro shift predicts or what you've seen with COVID in terms of addressing that problem. But I've been thinking about this too, that, that we should be talking about climate change and any kind of slow disaster and event disaster. COVID has shown that those binaries are false. I, th I think you're absolutely true. In fact, I when we wrote the piece, we had a much stronger conclusion where we talked about how the anthroship we're talking about examples from the environment. But we actually I we we feel very strongly that this basically this risk motivated social change happens on all sorts of fronts and it's not limited to the environment. And I agree that the the siloing in some ways worked really well when we were dealing with very specific environmental problems, like take, for example, ozone depletion, which was easy. It was, you know, a small number of gases were causing the whole problem and they were easy to fix once the technology was there. You know, like that, great. So you didn't really need everybody to focus on it. But when we think about such a wicked problem like climate change, which affects basically every way that we use energy and process energy in the whole world, all of a sudden everything's connected and it's impossible not to understand and think through how you know, deforestation, which is connected to economic development for some countries, is associated with, you know, environmental pollution and sea level rise, and the list goes on and on and on. So we're just, there's such an amazing interconnectedness. So I think in a lot of ways, the anthroship enables us to look with this large lens. Um, but I mean, I think that climate change in and of itself also makes that possible. I guess probably COVID does too. I haven't thought as much about COVID as I have about climate change um, because of the ways that it affects everybody in different ways. I mean, and it's one of the things I think is so interesting in comparing this back to risk society. Um, you know, when the when reflexive modernization came out originally, it said that it was basically going to flatten out hierarchical structures. So class didn't matter and all these things that right. separated right. us, you know. And then there was pushback and then there were all these papers written saying, no, 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 there still is class and there isn't going to be this universalization of risk because some people are going to obviously be on the front line of whatever disaster comes. And we've absolutely seen that, right? So in the beginning, those first eight weeks, everybody was terrified. And then we saw the ways that people who were the frontline workers and people who were in communities of color, color, excuse me, were certainly impacted much more quickly and much more severely than other parts of the population because they didn't have as much capacity to respond to the risk in a way that protected themselves and their families. It seems to me that's where the where historians are, need to step up, I think have, and where we just need a lot more disaster history because time really matters in that. And you know, just think about the concern of a nuclear power plant meltdown or nuclear attack more generally. There will be, <clears throat> excuse me. There will be an emergency phase. There's a there's an event phase in there in which it is much more the way Beck talked about it in risk society. It's it's universal unless every wealthy person can't launch themselves into space simultaneously. But they they can't get out of that. But like you just said, if you give it enough time, and it will be different for different kinds of disasters, you revert back to the social systems that we have. Being able to account for that both of those and the simultaneity of those and the factor of time in that, 
is work that I think, I think it, we need a lot of people working on that. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think time is key and variation is key and thinking through all sorts of ways that it may play out in different cultural contexts as well is really important. I don't know if we can treat it that way anymore. I wonder how you how you treat it or how you think about it. Well, it's a good question. I, it was on the list and I thought about it and I've been trying to come up with a snappy response since I saw the, the questions. I mean, <clears throat> let me just start by saying that uh, disinformation became kind of a big theme in the work uh, that I have done around climate change because disinformation and misinformation around climate change and climate denial have been a common theme that has been really effectively unpacked recently. And actually in, in the chapter that I contribute to in the IPCC for the upcoming assessment, we actually have a section that specifically talks about the role that um, specific political actors have played or let's more broadly social actors have pl played in funding as well as working very hard to cultivate and expand misinformation because one of the goals of misinformation is to confuse the public, right? And so I've, I've thought a lot about it in the climate context because it's become, it's so important. And, you know, some of my work has looked at these echo chambers among political elites where we basically talk about how and, tr and document how misinformation around the science of climate change leads specific policy actors to be empowered to push more, you know, you know, policy decisions that don't make any sense except for if they really want to continue to line the pockets of the fossil fuel industry, for example. So I've thought a lot about that. Thinking about it within the COVID context is this, you know, it's this amorphous, you know, growing thing that obviously is, it can't be an elephant in the room anymore, but it is an elephant in the room, right? Because the role that misinformation has been playing in, for example, vaccination here in the United States, as well as kind of responses to the pandemic, the, the masking stuff. I mean, yeah. it's just a, today I saw somebody was posting about how it's amazing that the people who think it's okay to enforce these, um, gun preparedness trainings on students don't want the students to wear masks. And, you know, it's just this, you know, it's okay to have certain kinds of mandates that come from the top down, but other ones are not okay. And it's clearly very politically motivated. So I think that understanding the social process that's happening requires that we bring misinformation in. The way that I do it in my work is really identifying the sources and then tracking back those sources to the power and the money that helps us to understand the role that they're playing. Um, and I've done that a lot around the climate decision-making, but I think that we could easily do it around COVID. I've talked a little bit about doing that around, if we think about, um, I've done some work around the January 6th insurrection mm. and thinking through this, um, we don't have a good name for it, the extreme right, the, you know, I think probably the extreme right is probably the, the most common way people talk about it, but the people who were involved in the insurrection of the Capitol, but have, were the same people who were involved in COVID mask protests that happened in Michigan, that basically started these kind of confrontations and taking over of um, government buildings that set a very clear precedent for the way that people were going to do that in Washington, DC in January. Um, but I think we can really follow that money and follow those networks pretty easily to see what's motivating it. Um, it's very frustrating. When you do the work of tracing climate misinformation, does, does that trail inevitably lead back to, you'd mentioned the fossil fuel industry. I mean, it's all roads lead back to then a, a more conservative, hierarchic social structure in which, I mean, this brings us back to the first part of our conversation in which business rules, capital accumulation is in the hands of a few is key and the environment is not, if it's treated at all, it's treated as an ever replenishing resource or something which will be destroyed, but it's immaterial to the main thing, which is about 
is about the market. I know I'm making that very simplified, but no, I, I think that's that's a perfect way of simplifying it, though. I, I think that's true. I mean, I think the one hopeful glimmer here that we've seen in the climate world is that as clean energy has become so much cheaper, there are a lot of policy actors now that all of a sudden are economic interests who stand to make money from wind energy, from solar power, and mm. from you know EV technology that's going to be diffused through cars. And so it's still not the same kind of entrenched, powerful interest versus kind of these newer economic interests, but at least we have money against money. But it's true that, that when, when we start looking at this, misinformation, I think, is all about maintaining the status quo. And the status quo is very much about securing and maintaining capitalist accumulation. And we so, can see it in the people who have been, sorry, just have been pushed no, to, um, to question the science around COVID, question the, the need for vaccines. If not, not kind of the everyday people who have been getting a lot of misinformation that they're digesting in their own ways through, you know, online fringe sources, but also through these kind of somewhat mainstream media sources, we'll call them that. Um, but if you trace it back to who's funding and supporting that stuff, in almost all cases, it's all about maintaining these economic interests in the, the status quo or what they see as the status quo. But it, it kind of, to my mind, it, it kind of flips it on its head to a certain degree. I mean, one would tend to think there's no great love for the pharmaceutical. It's strange. I mean, there's no great love for the pharmaceutical industry. The same as there's no great love for the oil industry. If you ask your average person on the street, like, what do you love in your life? The rare person is going to say, I love ExxonMobil. Just, yeah. I love that. You know, they've got plenty of brands they may love. It's tech companies and it's sports brands and it's food brands. It's not going to be an oil company. The same's always been true with insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. I guess I just don't see, and you but, can explain this to me a little bit, where the profit, again, where this road leads, the anti-vaccination disinformation road. To me, I mean, if it leads to Iran or to Russia, that makes more sense to me than if it leads to, I'm not sure where it, where it leads, I guess. Well, I think that it's basically preying. Well, so first of all, I would just say that a lot of these people's perspectives, I mean, the reason it's a misinformation campaign is because people don't feel a lot of brand loyalty to the brands that are going to profit from these perspectives, right? Right. If it was, you know, oh, I, I see. Know, the Care Bear company, then it would just be like, oh, don't let the Care Bear company go out of business. You have to support them. Instead, it's like, it's not, it's the Build-A-Bear people. So that's what I was talking about. But you know, like something that everybody feels like this emotional connection to, that's easy, appeal to that. Don't let them go out of business. But instead, the companies push for misinformation. There's been some great work on looking at the misinformation campaign coming out of ExxonMobil um, that has been documented really well by some of my colleagues, specifically showing how even as they had their own scientists finding that climate change was happening, that it was anthropogenic, and that the burning of fossil fuels was leading to it. ExxonMobil was publishing these you know, advertisements that looked like um, news pieces in top media sources to confuse the public. So it's that people have gotten confused. Now, that leads to the second question, which was, what, what's the point of the vaccination, like the anti-vaccination crowd? Why, you know, who stands to benefit from that? Right. And I actually believe that that is, um, that it's all wrapped up in this idea that the government should not infringe on individual rights. And it's basically been packaged as part of a message that maintains a certain perspective on conservatism, mm -hmm. where it's not really about supporting specific or, or, you know, in, if you're not, if you're anti-vaccine, I guess you're trying not to give money to, to a pharmaceutical company. Exactly. Like, yes. Right. But I don't think that that's really the motivation there. I think the motivation is rather this more individualistic perspective that is pushing for smaller government, bigger economic sector of all sorts, where the economic sector decides what you do and what you don't do. I and it's basically yeah. it's feeding on people's fear. That that to me is a really powerful insight and helps me see it more clearly because I think that's exactly the the specifics of it almost become sort of immaterial if the larger struggle is to keep people focused on that individual behavior is what's key and individual choices are what what matter in a in modern United States and to constantly push the problem of the social contract or the commons to the margin. Right. And, and you know, and there's 
It's, I mean, I, because I don't think any, I don't think that wearing a mask is really what it's about at all, but it's been framed in this way about my individual freedom and my right to do whatever I want to, my neighbors be damned because that enables certain powerful interests to then be able to do whatever they want if they come into power or when they come back into power as they see it and as they advertise it. That's again, where we need your, like your work your, of the anthro shift because because the same people can participate in really dynamic, uh, in some cases almost improvised um, social acts, which are hugely communitarian. And then three months later, they're in front of a state house protesting wearing a mask. And it's, I think it's the same people. And, and so in some cases it is. I mean, I wish that, you know, in my other work where I, I study activists, I actually look at the networks of people who participate and what they participate in so we can actually track repeat participation, et cetera, and so forth. And I would love to be doing that kind of work. Um, I don't have that kind of data, unfortunately, because I think that that an image of the participation in different events and who's doing it and what are their social characteristics would be so useful for understanding what's going on in our country. Um, I don't know if you know that, that um, on the 18th, there's going to be a new big um, protest that's been called here to um, support or what's the message the message is in solidarity with all of the people who are political prisoners because of january um six and so right now we're about the, the you know the capitol police are about to erect you know fences all around the capitol they have already found people who have come in threatening violence so it's expected that it could be you know quite a mess here mm. and you know tracking the degree to which we're talking about the same people or if the the people who are involved in this movement are expanding because of this continued misinformation campaign would be really valuable to know but unfortunately we don't have that kind of information just a reminder you're listening to COVID calls i'm talking to dana r fisher today dana i want to talk a little bit about your work on the intergovernmental panel on climate change and we've talked i think um, to me, very helpfully about these overlaps that we're seeing around environmental risk and COVID risk. I can't help but wonder if the next COP meeting, which I guess is coming up real soon in Scotland, November. And, yep. uh, and so I'm guessing that's going to be on the table and certainly in the hallway is how to think with COVID to think about about climate. I wonder about that, but I wonder more generally how you got into that work and, and what's it been like for you? How have I gotten into the climate work? into the IPCC work particularly? Uh, well, I got, I got into the IPCC work because I got invited. I mean, it's, it's very, um, you know, we get lucky if we get invited to participate. Um, and it's a real, um, it's a real honor to be asked to serve. It's, it's also a lot of um, free labor, which, you know, some universities commend and, and like to celebrate and some universities really don't care about. So you do a lot of free work. So to be honest, right now, I'm a, I'm a contributing author, which is a lower ranked person who was just asked to write about a specific expertise that they didn't have on the writing team of the leadership. And um, and that's perfect for me right now, because that was the amount of time I was willing to, to give in because I didn't want to have to travel to go to these meetings and talk more broadly. Um, but so I got involved in it because basically um, for years, I mean, my dissertation was on uh, comparing climate policy responses in at the domestic level around the Kyoto Protocol. So that was my first book was called um, National Governments, Governance in the Global Climate Change Regime, comparing the US, Japan, the Netherlands. And it was based on my dissertation research. And as part of that, I actually tracked the IPCC process at the time. I had worked with um, uh, a writer for Working Group One, who was a limnologist at the University of Wisconsin. And um, had gotten involved with um, an economist who was well known in Japan when I was doing my field work for my Japanese component of my work um, there, who was also working on the Asian in integrated model. So I had been tracking the IPCC. I did interviews with you know um, with many people who were involved in the IPCC as, around that book and the dissertation project. And I always thought, well, that would be so great, but the kind of work I do, they're not going to be interested in. Um, because they really were much more focused on understanding and modeling either like large scale economic change, uh, maybe like large scale political change, but mostly trying to model how the climate was going to change. 
And then more recently, there's been a shift to try to bring in more social sciences and understand, I mean, and a recognition that climate change is really a social problem, not really an environmental problem. I mean, the environmental problem, we know, so we know what's happening. It, it you know, there's still a need to finesse the data to see how bad it's going to be and how fast it's going to get bad. But the other stuff is all about the social responses in terms of if we can mitigate and if we can't mitigate, how do we adapt so that society doesn't get destroyed in many places? And so it doesn't look like, you know, some sort of apocalyptic movie, which is basically where we're going right now. I mean, there are parts of the United States that have looked like apocalyptic movies and around the world this summer, right? And the Washington Post just came out with this uh, report saying that one in three Americans had experienced climate disaster in their communities this summer. Which, and I actually think that's absolutely true. So, um, so when the IPCC asked me, they basically said they were working on this chapter on policy actors around mitigation, and they needed somebody to write about activism and civic engagement, which is basically a lot of what my work has focused on. Um, and so I was obviously you know, honored to be invited and thought this was so amazing to be able to write about it. And what's really interesting is that in a lot of my work on activism, we ask really different questions than the IPCC cares about. Because what I'm interested in when I write about activism is who's getting involved, why are they getting involved, are they successful? But for the IPCC, the only question that matters is how does it affect climate change? And nobody, when they actually, you know, do research on activism, well, not nobody, but just about nobody. And I know because I had it, I did the review for the IPCC and I just finalized my, uh, my section like a week and a half ago, very, very, very few people have actually looked at how activism itself has an effect on CO2 emissions, which is that line that we're supposed to be drawing. And it's a really important question, you know, especially because we see these big movements emerging, trying to focus on climate change and trying to push for climate policies for a strong you know, stronger policy coming out of Glasgow for states to actually follow through on their commitments, et cetera, and so forth. But the problem is it's a really indirect lever to push for change, right? So that's the work that I've been doing. And the take home, you know, message is that we really need to understand better the effects of activism. Uh, whenever I go to a protest, you always invariably have somebody in the media who's taking pictures of all the trash left behind and talking about, you know, those evil protesters and look at how dirty they are. And so many of them flew here and et cetera and so forth. And, um, and there's no question that that's part of the story, but the other part of the story is the degree to which that kind of um, pressure from the civil, from the civil society sector can have real lasting effects. I mean, for example, we just saw a couple days ago, Harvard finally agreed to divest from fossil fuels. And that was driven by a social movement. And I'm very happy, I was very happy to see that because the divestment movement I've written about in my section of the IPCC, and there hadn't been any um, good cases that we could look at for drawing the line between the activism and the actual divestment. The next step is the divestment then leading to CO2 emission reductions. And we need to draw that line too. So that's the work I'm doing. It's really mm. kind of nitty gritty, but I think it's really important I mean, this fundamental question of of the relationship between activism and CO2 reduction, which will not be linear, but still, I mean, that's absolutely crucial work. And as you say, um, it's ongoing work and involves something we were talking about earlier. Like, you don't just wake up one day and say, okay, well, let's go study activists. I mean, this is deeply, this is ethnographic work and involves a lot of patient you know, relationship building. Um, if you're going to do it yourself. And I, I, wonder, I wonder, you know, the news story that I read at the top of the program today about Francisco Vera, the 12-year-old environmental activist in Colombia, there we see a convergence of so many different things. So he's a young person, he's in, on social media, and he in his own um, way has shown the overlap between the concern about climate change, species loss, uh, and COVID. And I wonder then, you know, as you, as you think about what we're seeing right now and maybe in the near-term future, is that a kind of convergence of activism we should expect? I mean, children have been impacted. If you think about it, the way that it's been framed 
um, by Greta. Children are impacted because the fu their future has been curtailed by me, right? That's a powerful mm -hmm. frame. You adults messed it up. I'm not going to have a successful life. Um, but then they also can argue, so I think successfully now, because you're screwing up COVID, you're also affecting my ability to learn right now. So it's a powerful frame. I wonder if that's what you think of it, if you agree with that, but then more generally what you see in this convergence with COVID activism and environmental activism. Yeah, I mean, so I think that that framing and the way that young people have been framing the, these two issues is extremely valuable. I mean, and it's, it's absolutely true. I mean, I just think about my own children and the percentage of their educations that have been affected by COVID and the way that, you know, today my daughter had her COVID test at school. And it's like the idea that she would go to school and somebody sticks something up her nose like two years ago, and I would be okay with that is really surprising, right? Right. So their lives have changed and they certainly have changed more because we've done not a great job in addressing this global issue. Um, I think when, when we try to think about um, what's next, I mean, I actually, I have a, a project that's an ongoing project where I've studied the youth climate movement. And I actually, I'm just finishing this revise and resubmit specifically now on how um, collective identity is formed among activists in the youth climate movement around the world through, um, you know, on the digital, in the digital world, right? So how they can use digital, the digital environment to create this sense of a collective and a collective purpose that then leads to specific type of activism that works globally. And um, it's really fascinating the way the technology has worked with young people who have become so hyper-engaged in this issue. The question that like we still have to ask, okay, so, um, I mean, I've written a bunch of different things about the youth climate movement, and we know absolutely that young people who get involved in politics early on as activists will stay involved and become more engaged participants in democracy for the rest of their lives. So all of these young people will be much more active for the rest of their lives, whatever they're working on. That's what research tells us. Will they solve the climate crisis? We don't know. And that's a that's a really big question. I mean, you know, before when I started writing about this, I, I did a piece for Nature Climate Change about this uh, in 2019. So early on in the movement at the time, I said, you know, these these large scale protests are not going to change what happens through the climate negotiations. But now that we're in this moment of, you know, pandemic plus movement plus concern, I think we might be in this moment where the timing might be right for real social change, possibly. Um, part of me really worries, though, that we need that we're not yet to the disaster point where really we get to uh, the moment where enough energy gels to push against the powerful interests that have been working for so long to stop progress. I think about the, the scholarly work that I'm seeing right now, even right here, I'm a student in our program here at KAIST in Science and Technology Policy named Hyuna Kum, who's working on a, a project that she um, engineered herself about the plastic waste problem in Korea during the pandemic. It's, it's beautifully framed, right? The, the, the country was moving one direction in terms of curtailing its enormous waste issue with, with plastic. China closed its border to um, post-consumer plastic importation. It's caused a crisis. It's a policy crisis. It's an environmental crisis. And then the minute COVID comes, all of that gets put on hold because the country needs to be able to consume as much plastic as possible because people are locked in. And so now, and so it, it puts it right on the table. Will we snap back to what was a moment of sort of policy activism, which can be connected if you're decreasing the amount of plastic, your average South Korean is consuming, that's playing a role in curtailing the climate crisis? Or does it just, the pandemic has been a moment in which it enabled a continuation of the previous pattern? And she's just one of them, and she started doing this work and has found a network of scholars around the world who are doing this kind of thing. It's not, and it's engaged scholarship. I mean, it has the, it has the they're right on the front door of activism there too. So I, I have some, I guess what I'm saying is I have some hope. I'm not totally, pessimistic in this moment. I guess every time I talk with young researchers, I get fired up and, and just describing her work makes me very 
excited. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to end on a hopeful note here. I wonder <laughs> if you have some similar <laughs> um, work that you, I mean, you, your own work, but people in your orbit also who are, are taking this up and have not drawing such a hard line between scholarship and activism, because I think that's important too. I mean, I think I would just say, so, I mean, I've seen that with uh, young scholars. I mean, the thing that I think is giving me the most hope right now is, um, is, you know, I have this new project that's just starting looking at the civilian climate core that's being formed here in the United States. We're still waiting for the reconciliation package, which is actually going to be discussed tomorrow um, in the Congress to see what kind of funds get passed for this. But there will be some sort of a core formed and it will build on pre-existing um, cores that exist across different um, parts of the U.S. government. So like the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service. Department of Interior, there's some on tribal lands, and they'll all work together and expand to train young people to work to address the climate crisis through um, training for green jobs, for installation of um, technologies like clean energy technologies. And I actually, I think that may be where I'm feeling the most hope right now, because I see how that those kinds of efforts, if it can be somewhat centrally coordinated, and pushed by the government could have, you know, could have the kind of effect to push us over, you know, into this next wave of addressing the climate crisis. Um, that's how I, that's how I feel today, I guess, you know, we'll, and we'll see. I mean, there, there are protests that have been scheduled. We've got, um, there's a global day of action for the, on the 24th of September that's been called by Fridays for Future um, that, that Greta is planning on leading. There is a week of activism around climate change and civil disobedience pushing for the reconciliation bill that's going to happen the first week in October, I think, um, in the United States and here in DC. So there's lots of activism going on, but the more I think about what how we go from that activism to the change that's needed. We need to do a lot more work on that, but I think it's a really, really indirect path to social change. Whereas these programs that are trying to take young people who don't have really good opportunities for jobs within the clean energy sector and training them, putting them out into those jobs. I mean, it's a, it's, it's more wonky and less, you know, this, you know, activist, um, social change kind of vibe, but in some ways it may have more of an impact. And so, uh, so I'm really excited to see where, what, what we get from that. Want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 6 PM Eastern time. This was a special COVID calls at 7 PM Eastern time. And tomorrow, Tuesday, we will have the return of guest host Kristen Urquiza, the founder of Marked by COVID. And last week she talked with guests about um, COVID and teachers and the schools in Arizona. And tomorrow she's going to be talking um, with guests about that situation in Texas. What does it mean to be a teacher or a student in Texas at this time? So please do turn in, tune in 6 p.m. Eastern for Kristen Urquiza tomorrow. And I just want to thank Dana R. Fisher. I knew this was going to be a great wide-ranging conversation and it's exceeded my expectations. Dana, thanks for your work and for making time in your schedule for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And I'm so excited that you were uh, teaching reflexive modernization. I know. And we need like a secret handshake or maybe a club or a signal or something when any anybody in the world who's teaching it simultaneously, we need to be able to to communicate, I guess. Um, yeah, thanks support for your group. time. The support <laughs> maybe that too. <laughs> Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, six o'clock for Kristen Urquiza. Mm -hmm.